O oh God, we pray that you will take our minds and think through them, that you will take my lips and speak through them, and above all, that you will take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for our neighbor. Now, the text that was assigned to me by your good dean is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to prepare, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, this is a jewel of a text. And of course, First and Second Timothy are jewels as well. Now, we know that we call this little cluster of texts, one or two Timothy and Titus, we call them pastoral epistles. What a ridiculous title. This relegates them to footnotes at the back of the book. Now, I don't know about you, but I detest books that have footnotes at the back of the book. The footnote should go at the bottom of the page. And the term pastoral, well, we know what that does to us. You get all gooey and you get all nice. But these are not simply epistles about church order and discipline and even leadership. They are all of that. But they're a set of marching orders given by a commander who's about to die. Now, this is a kind of training manual for soldiers and athletes and hard-working farmers. That's how we should see this material. Now, the text, as I say, is an absolute jewel, and I want to get it clearly before our minds, so I'm going to give you a variety of translations. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You've heard that one. Here's another one. Do your best, listen to this, to win God's approval as a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, need to be ashamed and who teaches only the true message. Now that's Pelagian, if ever anything was. We're going to win God's approval? Haven't they heard about grace? Where were these translators when they developed this translation? Astonishing. Try hard to show yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker with no cause for shame. And then this, they add this, this is the New English Bible for heaven's sake, keeping strictly to the gospel. Now, I know that's in the context, but that's not what this text says. So you better pay attention to your Greek professors in all of this. And so we come back to the new Revised Standard Version, the old faithful. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining, dividing the word of truth. Now, the context for this imperative is, is very important, as you well, no. The wider context in the early church is that we're into now the second, third generation down, and the early church and its leaders are facing fierce persecution from the civil authorities. And this, recall, is Paul's last will and testament. 
Think of the book of Deuteronomy, where you get Moses laying it all out. Or you think of Jesus and those amazing passages in the Great Farewell in John's Gospel. And anybody who gives us their last will and testament, it touches us. We feel it. We know it matters. These are dramatic moments. Eight years ago, we lost our oldest son. I was in Scotland gathering up the literary remains of Professor Basil Mitchell and got the call. I had a prayer, Lord, get me back in time. He was in the hospital. And then my second prayer was, Lord, let him wake up. He was in a coma so that we could tell him we loved him. And I will never forget, I not share it here, I will never forget his last words in those moments of very, very few moments of lucid ability to talk. So this is not a kind of ordinary text. This is a text from your commander-in-chief who's about to die. The second issue with respect to the context is simpler. Paul is facing desertion. Now, if ever you've been left behind or betrayed, or people have sort of started out well and then given up, that's a pretty searing experience. Demas, he tells us, who loved the world. He was a Methodist. You know, we Methodists just don't believe in backsliding. We practice backsliding, and some of us even lose the faith itself. Now, we're not going to argue that case theologically here this morning. In another word, Paul says, at my first defense, none came to my support. Everyone deserted me. This was like at the functional equivalent of a grand jury trial. And Paul is hit by the experience of desolation. They're cowards. Let's be blunt about it. They're fair-weather Christians and leaders. They're cultural Christians who can't stand conflict or opposition. They develop a kind of toy religion, which you can sort of play with and have when you need it. But it's not going to go deep. And they are totally incapable of dealing with hardship. So I think our text, when you think of those two contexts, Paul's situation and the wider situation in the church, you can see that this is a profoundly relevant, a profoundly relevant text. So here it is again. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by God, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, we have a simple imperative and we have three qualifications. There you go. We've got a beautiful three-point sermon. And there's going to be a conclusion. Now, if you go through the whole of First and Second Timothy and just Second Timothy, you've got about 20 imperatives. At least that's what I count. Some of them are a bit indirect, but for the most part, they're direct, straight-up imperatives. And this one is like the sort of thesis statement that you get in a really good paper. It's a simple imperative. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining and handling the word of truth. So let's dwell on each of these for a moment. Do your best to present yourself to God. Now, I've been sort of presented here as a Wesley scholar. I'm an unapologetic Wesleyan. 
I discovered Calvinism when I was converted, and I thought, if that's who God is, I'm not so sure I want to sign on, but we're not going to argue that. And we Wesleyans, well, sometimes we're a little bit diffident about our theology, but not John Wesley. He has a very interesting technical term for what's at stake here. He calls it entire sanctification. Now, he developed this, in my judgment, because of astute observation of the spiritual lives of people. Wesley was a very bizarre individual, by the way. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he wasn't exactly a failure at Oxford. He would have been a brilliant theologian, in my judgment, if he'd stayed the course. But he did most of his thinking and most of his writing and most of his theology on horseback. And that's not easy. <clears throat> but he was an astute observer of the spiritual life. And he noticed this. He noticed that initially, for the people that he was trying to reach, that the biggest problem they had to face at that stage in the culture was guilt. And that was such a massive problem that people got obsessed with it, and until they got that problem solved, they really couldn't move forward in their Christian life. And you and I have seen that, maybe it's been the case in our own experience, and certainly I've seen it, I've seen it among students. But then, you sort of discover that after you've taken the problem, care of the problem of guilt, there's another one. It's the, power, it's the problem of the power of sin in our lives. And so there's a second challenge. How are you going to begin to obey God? Fine having all these imperatives, but how are you going to start really taking God seriously and obeying God? That becomes a completely different challenge. And Wesley's solution is very close to what you get here with Paul. Present yourself as best you can to God. First take care of the issue of your sin and atonement, and then take care, this is, by the way, also in the fine print in early Methodism, take care of being baptized and filled by the Holy Spirit. Because Pentecost is not just a kind of footnote added to what God did in Jesus. Pentecost, in some respects, is the goal. After God has taken care of our sins in Jesus, he wants new people. He wants us to be people who are intoxicated with the divine. He wants us people who are filled with God's own spirit himself. And that's why Wesley said we need to talk not just about initial sanctification when you come, but we need to talk about entire sanctification. And people need to sort out this process. And indeed, Wesley's sermons are an extraordinary attempt to come to terms with much of this. So, what is the first thing we've got to do? Not sort of get our underwear in a twist and get all uptight, but relax and say, Lord, this is tougher than I thought. I didn't realize people were going to walk. I didn't realize I was going to lose my commander-in-chief. Lord, I'm doing the best I can, and I'm going to get up every day, and I'm going to present myself to you to be available so that whatever shows up and whoever I meet, I can be an instrument of your Holy Spirit who will guide and direct me day by day. So, present yourself as best you can to God. And then the first qualification. As one approved by God. Now, you could easily slide that into the opening imperative, but I don't want to do that. Present yourself to God, not to church. Now, I believe in church. I think church 
The church is the most important institution in the world. Above medical institutions, above universities, above politics, whatever else you've got, the church is the most important institution in the world because it carries the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and more. So not to church, not to the culture, not to the latest fad in theology and philosophy. I love the latest fads in theology and philosophy. It's good fun sort of working through them. It's amazing how people, you watch them invent their new religion right in front of your eyes. My goodness. Not to your congregation, nor to the power brokers in your congregation. Now, that's a tough one. Every church I served in before I sort of got upgraded or downgraded to university teaching, first thing I did was I found out where's the power in this congregation. Not because I wanted to sort of pander to it, simply because I wanted to know what the dynamic was. You better know what the dynamic was or is. You look for approval to God. Now, just two other cases as a footnote, not to the favorite seminary professor you have, I'm sure you've got one, nor to our beloved dean, not even to him. But we seek the approval of God. Now, this can be extremely painful. It can be painful because a decision like this to give ourselves entirely to God and seek his approval often comes from failure. Or it may come from very intense suffering. Um, e. Stanley Jones is one of the great figures of 20th century Methodism. Um, he was a student at Asbury College at one stage, if I remember correctly, and he took a horse up into one of the dorms, and he only promised to take the horse down if, in fact, they wouldn't reprimand him. Now, a man like that ought to be a missionary in India, don't you think? And so he went as a missionary to India, and lo and behold, he got exhausted. After a year, over a year, he got totally and utterly exhausted, and he came back home got rest for a year, went back again, three months again. He was an abject failure. He had no energy. He was finished. And he wandered into the back of a church where somebody was preaching. And he said, Lord, I've had it. Either you take over or I'm going home. And God took over his life and made him one of the great evangelistic figures in Methodism in the 20th century. He had a lot of things to say about other issues that I'll not get into, but it was because of abject failure that he got to the point where he said, I want God's approval and God's approval only. And the other side of this that needs to be mentioned is the case of intense suffering. One of the great figures of 19th century Methodism is of course a woman called Phoebe Palmer. Elaine Heath, one of my friends and colleagues originally at Perkins, has written a superb book on, on Elaine Heath, on, on Elaine Heath, on, on Phoebe Palmer. In fact, I told her the historians are never going to pay any attention to you because you've written a spiritual biography of this figure. And it's very interesting if you, she was a key player in the development of the holiness movement. And one of the things, if you read between the lines and read carefully as to what happened to her, is she lost a child. And the loss of that child was precisely the occasion when she was able to say, I want one and only one person's approval, namely the very approval of God. 
Now, Wesley picked this up, and he developed it into an extraordinary liturgical service called the Covenant Service. It's not used in the United States because sort of we moved up the candle and it sort of didn't quite fit. <clears throat> but in old-fashioned Methodism back in the bogs of Ireland, every first Sunday of the year, the new year, you have this amazing Eucharistic service in which you go through all of what's happened in the past year. You ask for forgiveness for the things that didn't work out. You thank God for everything. And then you enter into a covenant with God afresh that he will put you to whatever he wants done. And in all of what you do, you will seek God's approval. That's the first qualification. The second qualification, <clears throat> a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now, please note, a worker and not a workaholic is a deep temptation that my listeners have. One of, the, one of the deep legacies of Wesley is that he turned a lot of Methodist ministers into workaholics. Not a good idea. Now, what's the work to be done here? Now, at this point, it's very helpful to look at the long list of imperatives that you get in True Timothy, and I think you can develop an interesting taxonomy that I'll not get into at this stage, but I want to pick out what I think is crucial in terms of a situation where there is profound opposition and where there is significant persecution of early Christians. And Paul expresses this in a number of occasions, and I'm just going to quote them to you initially. 113, follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me. 114, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 2-2, what you heard from me entrust to faithful men. 3-10, you follow my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then 3-14, continue what you have learned and firmly believed, and how from your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. Now, how might we summarize what I think is the central work that Timothy's been called to do in this passage, or in this book? Number one, don't give away the store. If there's one thing in my life that I've wanted to do is to retrieve the deep, deep riches of the Christian tradition. These are to be found in my own tradition, they're to be found in your tradition, they're to be found right across the face of the church. You can find them in Catholicism, you can find them among the Quakers, you can find them in Eastern Orthodoxy, but there is such an extraordinary range of resources and beauty and marvel within the church that, in fact, I've given my life in my own simple way to make sure that those are retrieved as best we can. So we don't give away the store and we preserve the faith once delivered to the saints. Now that is not a word that sort of is popular in certain circles because it's sort of hardened into a kind of orthodoxy. <laughs> and often when things get hardened into orthodoxy, you become belligerent. We'll get back to this in a minute. <laughs> and if you become belligerent, you're going to wreck the store. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to make treasures available, you've got to have a sense of humor. You've got to have cheerfulness. Didn't Augustine know that? <laughs> 
One of his wonderful comments about teaching new believers, he says, the biggest problem I have is sustaining cheerfulness. I have to tell them the same story over and over again. And we know that Augustine was brilliant. I mean, poor old Pelagius, who was Irish, by the way, he hadn't a chance against a figure like Augustine. But he knew how to keep his mind alert and to stay cheerful in preserving the great riches of the faith and articulating it afresh in his own day and generation. And that means then, says Paul, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Now, shame is a very interesting emotion. I'm not going to say too much about it. Shame is one of the self-conscious emotions, like guilt and pride. If you've got shame and you've got guilt and you've got pride, you know it. (laughs) And so shame is a painful feeling of humiliation and distress caused by consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. So I'm sure you can remember times when you were stupid. The S factor sometimes is very high, and you and I suffer from it, the stupidity factor, and we walk into situations and we don't zip it and we say things and afterwards you say, well, I'll not say what we say, we say, holy cow, how did I ever say that and I'm shamed of what I said. And then of course when we do wrong, then shame catches us as well. So it goes beyond embarrassment. Embarrassment is a sort of public affair. Shame and guilt and even pride can often be a very private and subjective thing. Now, the danger here is false shame. There are appropriate circumstances. There are correct circumstances in which we should feel a sense of shame. My mother used to say to me sometimes, Billy, you've got no shame when you grow up because you'd done things that were stupid or were wrong, right? But you've got to beware of people who want to use shame against you, who want to use it as a means of control, who treat it as a form of relational aggression. And we must never, ever, ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. We must never be ashamed of the great treasures of the faith that are given to us from one generation to another. And to put it bluntly, we are not for sale. And we're not belligerent. That's a delicate move. And it's the third qualification. Rightly handling the word of truth. So we are workers. And we are workers who know how to teach. More specifically, we know how to unpack the gospel and the scriptures. And this is where 224 to 25 are so important. As the Lord's servant, don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance. That's the grace of God. You can't convert a chicken. Just preach the gospel. Love the socks off people. Be gracious. Do exactly what Paul says here. Because God may grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and then they will come to their senses. What a great phrase. Escape the trap of the devil, 
Now, you have to explain that in the 20th century, but this is not the occasion to do it. Who has taken them captive to do his will. In other words, we're living in a world where, if you like, there's a kind of enemy territory, and we need to have our wits about us. And when it comes to the task of teaching, then we need to be alert. We need to be able to do it sensitively. We need to be able to do it with love and care. And there are two quick footnotes that I want to add at this stage. What we have to teach in the context of Timothy is the gospel received from Paul and the scriptures. Oh, that, that's a bit puzzling. But of course, it's not puzzling. Because what's at stake here is the Old Testament. It's the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, to be more precise. So if we were to change that in the life of the church, we'd have a fit, but we're not going to do that. But you'd better have the Old Testament, because the Old Testament will teach you about a God who is no fool. And then the second thing I want to say is that this admonition that we are going to, we're going to be as reasonable and gracious and non-Irish as possible, we're going to be all of those things, is the default position. Now, why do I say that? Because if you read the epistle to the Galatians, there is no reasonableness. The gloves are off. Paul says, you come and preach another gospel different from me, go to hell. Oh, did you hear that? If you preach a gospel different from the one that I've received, go to hell. What does that mean? There are circumstances, they're rare, they're not the default position in which you have to really stand up and take, a, and, and take things and deal with the situation as it's before you. That's why, by the way, you know, the Lutherans love Galatians. I think you need to meet a Lutheran about every two years. <clears throat> you know, all these nice Methodists, you know, we're all so warm and cozy. I love Methodism. But you need to meet a Lutheran who's stuck in Galatians. <laughs> And can't get out of Galatians. Uh, they're in your face at the first opportunity. And that's important. I've been working for over 10 years in Romania. We've been establishing a Wesleyan church there. It all started when I went down to Costa Rica. I went down to cheerlead our local church leaders because we were building an orphanage down there. And it, uh, it was wonderful. I went down and did the cheerleading and then discovered this bunch of Methodists down there. By the way, they had been reduced to 600 people as a result of liberation theology. Better get your theology right. And the bishop had said, we've had enough. And opened it up, and now they've got over 20,000. And they have all the problems that come with having 20,000 people. Don't, don't you forget that. So I went down, and what did I do? I met a fellow from Romania. He was the leader. I'm not kidding you. He was a leader in a satanic rock band in Transylvania called 666, and he was sitting in the second row. I ran the ontological argument to see if you could get Anselm's conception of God. He got it on the first go. I said, I want to meet you, and he wanted to take the faith that he'd received from within the Methodist tradition in Costa Rica back into Romania because he felt it was needed for his people. And I said, if you go back, I'll go with you. Or uh, I'll helicopter in. I'll come and see you. And for 10 years, I've been working with them. Now, some of you know how difficult it is to establish a new church. Most of them fail. And I remember vividly, about three years into this, we had uh, 
um, well, what was initially a delightful individual who came, full of enthusiasm, full of the joy of the Lord, full of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and lo and behold, then within about a year, she started her rampage against the church. And I, as one of the leaders who live in the United States, I just let it ride for a while. And then I sent her an email. And I said, look, you're not even a member of our church. Number two, who do you think you are? Do you think you're God who's got to come in and judge everybody who's in this church, including the pastor? And the third thing is, as far as I'm concerned, I'm in this for the rest of my life, and I'm standing firm. Now, go take your elephant elsewhere. And you know what the good news is? She did. Now, what I'm getting at here is that what the default position is exactly what Paul says here. We need to relax. We need to be cheerful. We need to be able to teach. We need to be reasonable. We need to get below the surface of what's troubling people, on and on and on. But there are moments when, in fact, we need to sort of just cut loose and deal with the situation and not be afraid to do so. And God will tell us and help us to do that. So there's the text. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, one last part. All those imperatives. How do you move from the imperative to the indicative? How do you get from all these wonderful things that God tells us to do to actually doing it? Now, that, of course, is the acute problem of sanctification. That's the acute problem of the spiritual life. We know what we should do. We have the orders from God. We have all that God wants us is laid out. What he wants us to do is laid out. And this was an acute issue for Timothy. Why? Because he's a second and third generation Christian. Think about this. This fellow never knew a day when he didn't love Jesus. What are you going to do with him? And the result is that he sort of maybe looks around and he thinks of all of those wonderful conversion narratives and he can't have one. And lo and behold, what that leads to is a certain timidity, a lack of confidence. Now, thank God, I love people who've never known a day when they didn't love Jesus. I wish I'd been brought up that way. I wish I'd come to Jesus when I first heard about him. But his grandmother and his mother, they just introduced him to the Lord, and from the earliest days he knew and loved the Lord. The other thing about him is that he's, um, well, his mother is a Messianic Jew, if we use the contemporary jargon, and his father's a Gentile. That's going to create certain conflicts of identity, shall we say. He's young, and he's a bit wet between the years, behind the years. And that's why Paul says, don't let anyone make fun of you because of your youth. And I think there's a hint here that he's highly emotional. Paul refers to him at one stage about his tears. Ah, that's interesting. And then, of course, recall again the wider context in which this is operating. This is a situation in which the whole church is facing persecution. So, it's no platitude to say, okay, do all that God wants you to do, and then go out into the world and into the church and actually pull it off. So you have to move from 
the imperative to the indicative. And the word in Timothy is very clear. Divine help is available. Fan into flame the gift of God given through the laying on of my hands. Now that's a text that'll make your hair stand at end if you spend some time with it. Our Eastern Orthodox and Catholic brothers and sisters know exactly what they want to do with it. <laughs> We're a bit wary of something being received in, with, and through the laying on of hands. But if you look back at Timothy's call, there was a word of prophecy. Paul took him aside, laid hands upon him, and the Holy Spirit worked in, with, and through the laying of the hands, just as the Holy Spirit works in, with, and through the Lord's Supper, and the Holy Spirit works in, with, and through the preaching of the Word. We shouldn't be afraid of that kind of thing. That's why when I see people being baptized, they say, Lord, zap them, get them. <clears throat> Maybe that's a bit too far for some Baptists, but I'm a bit of a kind of overgrown Methodist at this stage. Fan into flame the gift that God gives you through the laying on of my hands. And then this wonderful text. God has given you a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And then one eight. Share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. And then another text. Strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what's the core issue here? It's simply this. Imperatives are disguised promises and indicatives. That's to say, God is not going to ask us to do anything without showing us and without providing the resources that we need to do it. And so you get this wonderful sort of promise in this. It's by the grace of God, given daily in the means of grace, and in and through the grace and power of God, he will take us, he will use us, he will fill us, and he will equip us and give us the capacity and the ability as needed to actually carry out these imperatives. Well, you all know how John Wesley died, don't you? Very interesting, actually. If you've got a figure like John Wesley who's dying, you've got to be very careful. Because there's politics in the church. And there are people around about Wesley. And who knows? Somebody's going to be there at the deathbed. And if there's only one person, somebody's going to come out. And I said, you know, Father John, when he died, he told me to be in charge. He gave me the authority to do all this stuff. That's why if you look actually at the deathbed scene and you look at the recording of the death of John Wesley, this very careful historical detail is being supplied. All of the top brass are in there, including women, and everybody is there to be a witness to make sure there's going to be no shenanigans afterwards. And you know what the last thing that good old John Wesley said? It's beautiful. He said, the best of all is God is with us. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Lord, that I may learn of thee, give me true simplicity. Wean my soul and keep it low, willing thee alone to know. 
Let me cast myself aside all that feeds my knowing pride, not to man, but God submit, and lay my reasonings at thy feet. Of my boasted wisdom spoiled, docile, helpless, only seeing in thy light, only walking in thy might, then infuse the teaching grace, spirit of truth and righteousness, knowledge, love divine impart, life eternal to my heart. Amen.